You're listening to Jack Barksdale's Roots Revival. So, ladies and gentlemen, Jack Barksdale. Hey, everybody, it's Jack Barksdale here. Welcome to another episode of Jack Barksdale's Roots Revival. Today, I'm here with Nicholas Edward Williams, also known to some as the Weatherman, or <laughs> Weatherman. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to do this interview with you, and how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk to you, too. I've been watching all your videos and um, just really proud of the work that you're doing um, and the field that you're in. So it's really nice to meet you, well, in cyber world, at least, in person. Yeah, Yeah, same here. Yeah, so you've got this podcast called American Songcatcher. Correct. And you're a great singer-songwriter, folk musician. And so I'd just like to ask you a whole lot of questions because I've got a lot of them. (laughs) Uh, Fire away, man. You do just some really interesting things. And so first I kind of just want to get to know you and your music. Uh, When you start listening to Roots music. Um, So that goes back to around 2009. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd heard... I'd heard string music before, but I'd never really stopped to listen, if that makes sense. I never actually listened, listened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was playing at a, uh, it's a, it's a festival ground in Live Oak, Florida. It's called the Spirit of Swanee Music Park. And they have a bunch of big festivals throughout the year there. Okay. Um, one of which is Huluween and a lot of them are family friendly festivals that are in roots music veins like bluegrass and old time and folk and all that good stuff. Um, and I was playing there under the moniker Weatherman, which is my previous project. And I, for the first time, started watching um, guitar players, flat pickers, um, and people that were doing finger fingerstyle guitar. And I was watching mandolin players and fiddle players and uh, finding myself feeling nostalgic, even though I didn't really I never listened to it before, but it seemed like it was familiar on some level. Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, it started back then. And then I've been at that festival um, every year since. And I think every year that I go back there, I find more and more that I love about Roots music. Um, Wow, that's amazing. Thanks. Yeah, that's awesome. And when did you decide to start, you know, actually start to play and find these different Roots artists, play these songs? Um, I, it was a slow burn for me. I started playing guitar when I was, uh, 17 and, uh, which is 20 years ago. And I didn't think about it. And I really was just kind of all over the place, um, for a long time. Um, like many people do, you know, playing Led Zeppelin and Dave Matthews band and John Mayer and everything in between. And, um, it took until, probably three or four years after going to that festival um, that I was talking about earlier that I realized that I wanted to kind of um, go that direction. It took, it was probably around 2014 mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't get serious about that until 2017. Um, and I met my mentor, her, her name was Joan Crane and um, she was playing at a farmer's market in upstate New York and I was there on tour and she was playing 
everything from from Big Bill Brunzi to Mississippi John Hurt and Skip James and oh, wow. all this really amazing finger style blues stuff. And That's she was crazy. in her seventies. Yeah, she was in her 70s and she was sitting there in the in the hot sun and she had a this portable breathing machine and a tube up her nose while she was playing. And so I and she was really really good, but also I was just kind of amazed at her state of, you know, the condition that she was in that she was able to play this stuff. So I went over to her afterwards and asked her um who she was and what was going on like I was yeah. my jaw was on the floor. And then um I ended up uh taking lessons from her. And she was the first one who um, introduced me to thumb pick and put that thumb pick in my hand. Everything started changing from there. And I'd already been finger picking for a while, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was just playing what felt right. And what she gave me was a, a structure to work on of like, this is a style of Piedmont blues. This is a style of ragtime. This is a style of country blues or, you know, this big umbrella of Delta blues. Um, and so around 2017 was when I really started diving in to understanding the history uh, on a on a different level, not just understanding it from a you know cerebral standpoint, but really trying to start to play those songs and those styles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. That kind of ties into the next question. I'm uh, just going to ask as a which you answered a little bit uh, already, but what were some of your early influences before you kind of got into that? Um, I think for mo like most people, I Bob Dylan was a huge gateway for me, um, yeah. his early recordings, just because, um, and I didn't know that a lot of that stuff was traditional material. Um, and from Bob, I started going backwards. So I went to Woody Guthrie, which is the, yeah. the natural next standpoint. And then understanding who Woody Guthrie was, I started looking into Lead Belly. And yeah. then from there, you got, you know, you can go into several different directions of songsters. Um, but really, I think the first person that, um, where I was like, man, I really want to sound like that uh, was Mississippi John Hurt when I found his stuff. Yeah. Um, that's the first time when I, I really wanted to emulate somebody that was playing an old style of music. Um, and then, you know, he's a perfect gateway too into, into the musical past. Cause he sounds kind of timeless. You know, he, yeah. you can just sit there and any time of decades or eras, and you could sit there and enjoy him playing on the front porch. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it was Mississippi John Hurt was probably the first person, but then uh, also Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, um, even Neil Young, um, yeah. and that whole kind of classic folk scene. Uh, of the 60s and 70s. And how have those influences changed over the years, you know, to now? Like, what are some of the big influences that have happened since then? Um, well, I guess, you know, when you start going down the rabbit hole of traditional music, you keep finding more people to that inspire you. Um, oh, yeah, for definitely. For, you know, for instance, right now, for the podcast I'm working on, the next episode is women and and old time and bluegrass music and it's highlighting all the different women who are there it'll be you know each season will have one episode so this is just the first part but um learning a lot more about gene ritchie who was kind of instrumental in the folk revival and the appalachian dulcimer becoming a popular instrument um she you know her family's lineage goes back to scotland and they were it's one of the only families in america where 
the songs that they brought from Scotland were preserved through the family. So we, you have a direct tie to Scotland. A lot of people just kind of guess like, you know, all these immigrants came from uh, the British Isles in the 1600s and the 1700s, yeah. and they kind of just mishmashed together in the Appalachian Mountains. But this is the first, one of the only families where you can really find a, a fine line. So through her playing and through her songs, I found a ton of stuff, some of which I was just working on earlier. And those are old Scottish ballads. Um, so that's another, that's a variation of the change. Another variation is, um, from Mississippi, John Hurt, you could go to somebody like Mance Lipscomb, or you could go to somebody like, um, Blind Lemon Jefferson. So I'm, I'm starting to, uh, realize that the more history that I uncover, the more people I want to, you know, emulate, or I want to preserve is the main thing is just to share their stories, but also to um, play their styles um, and keep those alive. So for me, it's kind of an, it'll be a constant evolution for all, as long as I'm alive, probably, honestly, um, of finding new people to, to um, emulate and to preserve. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, one of my current uh, obsessions is been going on for a while is uh, that Piedmont blues style and like yeah, man. time style. It's, that's it's infectious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once you start listening to it, you can't keep yourself from playing it. Yeah. I think too, um, of the, of the different styles that I play live, mm -hmm. the Piedmont blues gets the most response from a wide range of people. So like I'll have little, you know, four-year-olds dancing and I'll have people that are 70 years old tapping their feet. And then I'll have people that are in their middle ages kind of getting up and dancing a little bit. So, mm -hmm. Um, that seems like one of those genres that it doesn't really matter who you are. You'll probably find yourself tapping along. Um, that's awesome that you're interested in Piedmont Blues. Um, who's some of your, who are some of your favorite Piedmont Blues musicians? Well, I love Blind Boy Fuller. Mm -hmm. I've just kind of been trying to dig deep into that. I've even started going back and listening to some Reverend Gary Davis, his teacher. Right. And I, I haven't expanded on Piedmont style too much, but I'm just kind of getting into it and I really love it. Yeah. Reverend been, Gade. Yeah. Sorry, I, go ahead. Oh, I've been kind of into that, you know, ragtime, uh, country blues, that kind of stuff for a while, but the Piedmont is pretty new to me. Yeah. Uh, the Reverend Gary Davis stuff um, is so. Um, I mean, it goes beyond Piedmont Blues, but it really, oh, I feel yeah. like once you can start getting some of those shapes up the fretboard um, and understanding the different ways to play the chords like he did, um, that opens up so many different doors um, to different styles of music. He, so the um, my mentor was taught by a man named Andy Cohen, who is still performing today, but he learned from the Reverend Gary Davis um, oh, firsthand. Wow. Yeah, so some of the stuff that she taught me was some of those, yeah. you know, the different uh, ways that he uses intonation and the different ways that he uses um, the playing different chords at the neck yeah, uh, is great. really fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, there's this one uh, Reverend Gary Davis instrumental that I just find so fascinating. I think the title is Civil War March. Yeah. It's so good. I, it really, I, really is. That's, is that just him? Is that just one guitar? It's just one guitar and yeah, he makes it sound like an entire marching band. 
Um, That's the craziest thing <laughs> I've ever heard. Yeah, uh, he um, he was just an insane player. He had such a wild story too. If you if you're interested in listening to his story, I've heard, the second episode of the first season I covered his um his life and um oh, man, I he really just want to watch that or yeah, to that. he really um had he had a a difficult time for a lot of it um yeah. but he really man he just he inspired so many musicians that we don't you know people that we don't talk about enough is he's a good example of one of those people that's kind of what has influenced you know your your general style and your your musical playing when did you start writing songs and uh mm. to write i started writing songs um two years after i started playing guitar so i was uh well about like a year and a half after i started playing guitar so i was 18. um and a lot of it started with me essentially taking i would print off lyrics of songs that i liked and i would change the words around mm -hmm. so that it felt like it was something that was my own which was total <laughs> plagiarism <laughs> um but i ended up um i was really into writing poetry before i started writing songs and when i um, awesome. It had been several years since I was since I had been writing, and when one day I was cleaning out my closet and I found this old poem that I wrote, and I realized that I could just use poetry a lot of the time um, that I was writing. So um, the Weatherman Project was the foundation of the first couple songs were all poems, and then from there I kind of expanded into um, feel, feeling out different styles of songwriting. Um, narrative non-narrative story um you know just like experiential observations um moral compass kind of songs and i um i wrote probably over 300 songs many of which i will never ever let anybody hear <laughs> or see yeah. but you know you have to get through a lot of really crappy songs to get to the good ones yeah um but yeah, I started finding success um, about around 2006, and that's when I started um, recording. And okay. I, so with the Weatherman Project, I released eight records of uh, original material. Where yeah. do you keep a lot of those records? Or where are they? Because I haven't found a lot of them uh, digitally. Only a, They're all on Bandcamp. Bandcamp. As okay. you know... Yeah, as you know, TuneCore and you know all these distribution services where you put your music up onto Spotify and uh, Pandora and uh, iTunes and all that stuff, it costs money to keep them yeah. up. And yeah, being and the they're, starving, they're it's it's vicious. You're right. And if you don't make a certain amount of money in your sales, you know, from each record, it's at some point if you're like me and you're a starving artist um, to the T, you just start cutting out those unnecessary streaming services and say, if people really want to listen to it, they can go to Bandcamp. Um, yeah. So that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, there are a couple artists that have done that. Someone that I interviewed for this podcast, Scott Nolan, is a songwriter mm -hmm. in Canada. Yeah. He moved a lot of his, well, he still has his old albums on Spotify, but he started releasing a lot of singles and little demos he had on Bandcamp. I think there's like a pretty nice little revival going with people supporting ban on Bandcamp and getting, even though most of them are, you know, they're getting MP3s um, and they're not, you know, necessarily getting straight merchandise from there, but because of the Bandcamp Fridays that they've been doing, um, I feel like a lot of people have been, um, you know, the traffic has started to pick up on those websites. So that's a good thing. And I think, yeah, 
I mean, at this point with the way that things are, are for musicians, um, and the way that people find music, I think it is important to diversify and put your stuff on for free on streaming services, or you pay for it like we do. Um, and to also have the option for people to go on Bandcamp and, or, you know, whether, whatever other, um, websites are out there for people to buy music directly. Yeah. Kind of have a, I have a couple more questions on the Weatherman project. Actually. Sure. Where did that uh, name come from? From the W-H-E? Yeah. It's spelled W-H-E-T-H-E-R-M-A-N. Yeah. Um, if anybody out there, if you are familiar with a, a book called The Phantom Tollbooth, which is from 1963. Um, and it's a, it's, I don't know if anybody remembers the movie Never Ending Story, but it's very similar in that this kid finds this uh, toll booth in his room and the toll booth transports him to an alternate universe, an alternate reality. And there's all sorts of weird stuff, you know, weird people, weird sort of creatures and animals and uh, landscapes are all different. And one of the first people that he meets on that trip is named the weatherman, but it's weather the way I spell it. And then there's a dash and then man. Yeah. And he's not an, an important or integral character. Um, he just says some really weird stuff like, after all, is an important. Isn't it more important to know whether there'll be weather than what the weather will be? A bunch of tongue twisters and yeah. um, things where you're just, you know, not really sure where you are sort of thing. Yeah. And I was, I'd read the book when I was in, uh, when I was young, when I was a kid. And then when I was in college, I read it again. And I don't know why, but that character um, kind of took my attention and I I was looking for a name at the time uh, to call myself or to call an eventual group that I might have. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to go with that. Um, I didn't realize when I made that choice that I would also be making the choice for about 75% of the venues that I played to misspell it almost every single time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not an easy one to tell people, you know, you always yeah. have to spell it. And Anytime that even if I had sent an email that was very clear about how, how to spell it, yeah, it was yeah. always misspelled in some weird way. Oh, wow. And I never <laughs> thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, uh, details. Details is right. That's super cool, that uh, project. And now you've got your real name, Projects, mm -hmm. and you've also got this podcast that I talked about earlier, <laughs> American yeah. Songcatcher. I just think it's so cool and just all the time that you must have to put into it and how great the product is. It's really amazing. And how did you come up with the idea? How did that start? That started um, originally with, um, with my mentor, Joan. I guess she kind of planted a seed because her big thing that she always told me was um, that she was teaching me to play it forward, which, you know, the, the, main saying you hear is pay it forward, like, mm -hmm. you know, pay for somebody else or help people out sort of thing. Yeah. But playing it forward meant to continue playing the songs. And um, I, when the pandemic started, um, I started doing these every morning, I would do morning coffee sessions, I would play for an hour um, and do a live stream. Mm -hmm. And 
I would take requests for the next day. And a lot of times they were themed. Um, and one of my good friends who has a nine to five, um, told me after he got home later that day and watched it, he said, Hey, I really want to listen to your morning coffee sessions. Um, but I don't, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm working. I don't want to get on Facebook and, um, you should do a podcast. And I was like, cool. Let me think about that. So I started mulling over ideas about doing a podcast with the morning coffee sessions. And I was like, there's going to be so many copyright problems yeah. with that. Um, and I really wanted to do something that was beneficial to the greater folk community. I didn't know what. Um, and so I started mulling over how I could use that sort of angle and the podcast. And I looked into other podcasts and I realized that there was no music history podcasts that were specific to American roots music out there besides oh, wow. cocaine and rhinestones, which is country music, particularly, um, at least ones, you know, there's KCRW does a lost notes and sometimes they cover roots musicians, but you don't have, there's no podcasts out there that are specific towards, um, yeah. traditional music. So I thought, cool. Um, I'll start there. And my first sort of structure that I was going for was, I'm just going to play one song. I'm going to put one song in the background and I'm going to talk over it. And I quickly realized how boring that was. And then I started cutting up, adding more songs, adding more songs. And the first episode was really a, a big experiment. Um, and I also had to really work on my voice inflection because the first several takes I would, I sent to my wife and she said, you just sound like you're monotone. You don't sound like you're having any fun. There's no emotion whatsoever in your voice. Nobody's going to want to listen to this. <laughs> um, and I sent it some up to some other people and they said the same thing. So then I realized that I really didn't need to work on my, uh, the way that voice. I speak in yeah, my radio voice is right. I defined it, but I didn't want it to be, uh, your typical radio voice. It's all, you know, kind of exaggerated and yeah, yeah, yeah. has a lot of, big inflection so that you pay attention. I wanted to be conversational um, and re and be relatable without being like grabbing attention sort of thing. Yeah, not too um, extravagant. So I, exactly. So it took some doing to get to that point, but I did. And um, by the second episode, um, when I covered Willie Watson, who was the founding member of Old Crow Medicine Show, um, I tagged him on social media when I posted it, as I do for anybody that's still yeah. live um, and I'm covering them and he ended up posting about it and saying that it was his favorite new podcast. And um, wow. I, I was completely blown away and I didn't, I guess that was the point when I realized that I actually was reaching the community that I wanted to, to help foster and to help, um, you know, for the next generation, like yourself, I wanted, I wanted, the community to keep going. And so that was the first realization that I had something. Um, and then every episode since then has been a kind of, um, I keep having to do a little bit more work, a little bit more work, but it's, yeah. um, it pays off now because it, you know, I can, I know that there's a reception out there and that it's actually doing some good. Yeah. It really is such a cool concept and I feel like you're doing it really well. And I can tell you put a lot of work into it. And how do the how do, does a normal, uh, a typical podcast episode of the American Songcatcher 
that isn't like an interview. Do you research a lot for it? Uh, how do you research? How does it f get formed? Uh, it always starts. So I have a, a really long list. Um, I always plan out the whole season. Um, okay. And a lot of times I'll kind of adjust artists. So there's for anybody that hasn't listened to the show before, there's always five segments. The first segment is a traditional song, how it got to America. So I have a huge long list of traditional songs to pull from. And they're not just songs from the British Isles. Sometimes they're old gospel songs or hymns. Sometimes they're plantation songs. Um, and from, from the list of both the traditional songs and the musicians, which is it's growing every single day of, um, I probably have like 20 seasons worth of musicians that I want to cover. Yeah. So I'll form the, the season and try to make it eclectic. And then when I start going into, to do the work on each episode, um, I always start with, um, going down every single rabbit hole on the internet of the biography behind the musician. A lot of times, um, I will watch interviews of them if the, if applicable. I'll watch live performances so I can see their stage performance or their you know demeanor on stage if I haven't seen them before. I'll listen to experts talk about them. A lot of um, times you have people that are you know have spent their whole life or have spent decades studying a certain artist or a certain style of music. Um, and then from there, you know, it's more of it's cross-referencing. It's making sure that all the facts that I've kind of put down on the on my uh, Google Doc are accurate. Oh. And uh, from there, it's all about telling a story that is um, that deepens the understanding of the musician and their songs. So a lot of times, I really want to make sure that it's balanced. Of uh, if there's any kind of adversity that they've had to face or hardships to make sure that those are mentioned, but they're not harped on. I don't, I don't do any kind of critiquing. So there's no, like the way I feel about an artist. There's no, I, the way I feel about a song, it's all about, um, their story and their legacy, the people that they've inspired, the musicians that we love and that they've inspired and making sure that this, the story comes across as human because ultimately that's why you connect with people is from a human standpoint. Right. Yeah. And so the whole goal of it is to give people a deeper sense of what that musician went through when like, you know, if I mentioned that in the 19, you know, this year in 1953, they went through this huge life change. And then 1954, they released this record. If anybody likes that record, likes songs from that record, they'll understand. Wow. There's way more, meaning to this song that I realized that sort of thing. Yeah. And crazy. yeah. So then it, from there, it's like a lot of reading through making, you know, kind of redrafting and drafting when I actually go through, um, and record myself, it's all scripted. Obviously mm -hmm. the recording process takes a little bit longer than, um, some people would imagine I'm not just reading it through. I have to make sure that, um, a, I'm not messing anything up. I'm pronouncing names, right. That I'm, um, sometimes the, the way that I write it down doesn't actually translate well when I'm speaking it. Um, yeah. which is kind of more has to do with my own sort of hangups about speaking. It's like, it's, 
made my issues with speaking in public more pronounced now. Like I know which words I have a hard time yeah. saying or, you know, um, and so it's kind of, yeah, it's been liberating in that, in that aspect as well. But yeah. And then from there, it's, it's just kind of tailoring everything down. I usually end up going through each artist's catalog because at the end of each segment, I, I perform my own rendition of their song or of the song that I'm discussing. And for those bits, uh, a lot of times I just go through their whole catalog and find a song that feels good. Um, if I don't already play a song of theirs, um, live uh -huh. and with, with the traditional songs, a lot of them I've already played before. Um, but a lot of times I end up learning them on the spot today. Uh, I was just learning a, a song that Jean Ritchie, uh, preserved called Jubilee, which she performed with Doc Watson, uh, at Gertie's Folk City, which is an old venue in New York city uh -huh, yeah. and listening to the different, um, recordings of her solo and then her with doc I'm trying to figure out how I can intermix those, um, yeah. because he's been a huge influence on me. Yeah. Um, Definitely. and so, yeah, just, and then I record those separately and then I keep drafting and redrafting those until they get right until they feel like they're good. Uh -huh. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like around 50 to 60 hours a month, um, per episode. That's why I can only do once a month. I do have two guys that are volunteer writers that have been huge. Um, cause you know, each story and writing it, researching it, editing it, editing and writing takes about five days per, per segment. Mm -hmm. So I have two guys that are helping me now. So that cuts out about 10 days of work, mm -hmm. um, as volunteers. So I'm trying to get to grow it to the point where I have a team and I don't have to do all of the writing and I just record for the most part, um, yeah. that would be the eventual goal, but still a little bit of ways from there. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. It's just so cool. I don't know how else to put it. It's just very, I feel like it's exactly what was needed. Mm. Thank because you. Sometimes people probably myself included put out these projects that in a very saturated field aren't always very original. And it's kind of just an, another, it's kind of blocking the view of what you want to get to. I feel like this is just a really great project that'll help a lot of people. And it's also great that it's very factual and lets people form their own opinions. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's important to me for it to be educational, but for, I don't want to sway anybody's opinion. And I definitely don't want to ruffle any feathers by you know, putting in, you know, interjecting my own opinions on things. Yeah. Um, you know, I ha I do have people kind of constantly kind of um, sending me messages or emailing me about who I should be covering and uh -huh. um, people that they want me to interview and all that stuff. Yeah. And um, I'm, you know, there's certain people that I'm choosing to cover instead of others. And I, you know, I, that's my own thing, but that's as far as I'll go as far as like, you know, putting my own opinion or my own spin on things. Yeah. Um, I do think like, you know, that interview podcasts are, are important though. And uh, even though there's a lot of them, I think that there, there's a lot of conversation going on, not necessarily oh, yeah. a lot of qu quality conversation, but I do think that a podcast like yours, especially because of where you are in your life and what you're interested in and what you're covering and what you're exposing to other people is is huge because 
conversations are a lot more easy to digest than you know all the facts that I lay out in each episode. I think it, ter- it takes a certain kind of person to want to listen to conversations and it takes a certain kind of person that wants to listen to like an uh, entire documentary in an hour yeah. and a half. Um, so yeah, I think there's, you know, it's a, there's a time and place for everything. And for certain people, I think it's just a different feel, but I, I do agree uh-huh. with you that there's a whole lot of saturation as far as uh, interview podcasts go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kind of speaking up, I really do uh, love the interviews that you do. I feel like they're done really well with just phenomenal artists. Yeah. I've been really lucky in that respect to get to talk to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm uh, opening for Dom Flemons, who was the first person I, I interviewed for the show. Um, and I get to open for him next year. Wow. And awesome. um, the people, yeah, the people that it's, it's cool because it does, because it's a podcast medium and it's not me with my music, you know, knocking on their door saying, Hey, listen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the selfless aspect of it does seem to make people want to talk to me more, which is great <laughs> because, you know, I want to be able to talk to have a conversation with David Holt or um, Oliver Wood, or, you know, next year I'm hoping to include some, some other people in that conversation field, but um, without the medium itself, um, and without talking about traditional music, uh, I would be sitting there like, what am I supposed to, what, what do I say to these people that are all, yeah. you know, that are so influential. And so, you know, it's, it's, I get the whole deer and he- deer and headlights and fanboy sort of feel like when I, if I listen, I listened back to the Dom Flemons interview, I was so giddy the entire time that I was talking to him that I was just, I was smiling ear to ear throughout the entire video interview. And, um, I, I mean, I was excited. I didn't want to hide that, but also I went a little bit overboard with my excitement <laughs> on air. And it also like made me stutter my words and kind of, you know, rambling on. Um, so, you know, there, there's some of that, that too, but <laughs> I think it's hard to, you know, it's hard yeah. not to, if you're, yeah. if you're a fan of the person, it's, it's hard to pull yourself out of that. But the, the interview, as you know, the interview kind of style does allow you to at least step back and kind of put like a different lens in front of you. Like I'm only asking questions and you know, I'm not here to let them know how much I like them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, kind of speaking of that, uh, I have become a really big fan of your music. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I've been listening to a lot of it and I find there's a bunch of different, just uh, a lot of different instruments. Like you're a great guitar player and great harmonica player. I've seen some banjos in the mix every now and then. How many instruments do you play? I play, uh, okay. I play guitar as my primary instrument, banjo, harmonica. I play piano. Mm -hmm. I can play Appalachian dulcimer. Mm -hmm. I can play some mandolin. I'm learning the fiddle right now. Me too. uh, But I'm terrible at it. (laughs) it's really hard um i play sitar uh i can play most most percussion instruments i spent a long i had i've had a i think two or three sitars now um i don't have one at the moment Mm -hmm. i left it in costa rica unfortunately um but my wife is a yoga instructor we were doing a lot of um sound to 
live music or yoga to live music. And so that's what I was getting the sitar for. Oh, wow. Um, ukulele, kind of anything stringed I've yeah. played or can play. Um, and pretty much any percussion instrument. Um, I can also play kalimba and thumb pianos and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I do, I do have an obsession when it comes to different cultural instruments. Um, oh, yeah. My, my dream is to just, I'm sure you have a very similar one, is just to have a, a whole huge wall all the way around my room full yeah. of different instruments. Um, yeah, the fiddle is proving to be very difficult at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard yeah. to learn it because you feel so bad having other people hear it while you're doing it. I know. So I started taking like really beginner fiddle lessons when I was six before I started playing guitar because my fingers were too small. Mm -hmm. uh, so instead, my parents got me fiddle lessons. And I so I've learned I learned and have since forgot how to read music. <laughs> and I learned just like the very basics. And then once I was seven and I got guitar lessons. I just took that and ran and kind of left the fiddle behind. But recently, uh, these last uh, couple years, I've started getting back into fiddle. I got this, uh, I've got this violin and I've been, and I, I think last year I started playing around with it and I just started, I decided to buckle down and say, you know, this is going to sound terrible, but I just have to get through this and until I can make some sort of sound that is pleasant. And so I finally got to where I could play some very basic things, very basic chords, basic melodies. My friend plays fiddle. Her name's Mason Shearer. And so I started getting lessons from her. But yeah, it's just such an interesting, interesting instrument. It's yeah, crazy. I really want to... I want to play it well so bad because I love when I it sounds good. It's I know, you know it's, and it's and the, working towards that. <laughs> yeah, you push through the the terrible because you're just yearning so bad for that sound. Yeah, like I'm I'm pretty sure at some point it's just gonna sound really good. I just don't know when. I actually I was proud of myself the other day though. I got I was able to drone the. Let's see, that'd be the E and A string together and play something that sounded like it belonged, you know, back in the 1700s for about four seconds. <laughs> and so I was, I stopped and I was like, that's all right. That's like the first taste of it sounding okay enough to maybe play in front of somebody else. But yeah, yeah. But yeah I'm excited because I'm moving uh, next month and I have, I have a shed, like a, a finished shed that I'm going to move all my podcasts and music stuff into. So I'll have a separate space oh, wow. outside that I won't have to subject anybody else like my child or my <laughs> wife to. Yeah. Although he let my, my son, who's a year and a half, just about to be a year and a half loves when I play it, no matter how bad it sounds. So mm -hmm. there is that, I don't know what that's about, but yeah. that's pretty funny. So you play all these different instruments and you're clearly very passionate about them all and about this uh, podcast you so what is your like current main 
what's your current main focus? What is your current passion right now? That uh, is it like the podcast? Is it a certain instrument? Is it writing, singing, or something totally different? Right now, uh, it the podcast has surprised me uh, and has continued to surprise me in the amount of opportunities that it presents. And so it's kind of, it's definitely become my second career. It's what I spend a majority of my time on each month. Um, And aside from that, I also do booking for myself and for a couple other bands. Um, So my big focus right now is 2022, aside from the podcast, is 2022 um, getting back to playing quality shows. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I would say as far as the computer work goes, those are the two main focuses at home and in my career, um, aside from, you know, doing the business stuff, my big focus is continuing to develop more stylistically, um, diverse kind of, uh, ways of playing guitar. Mm-hmm. I've been working a lot on my Carter scratch, um, working towards finger picking, um, but really kind of studying Norman Blake is kind of the main catalyst for wanting to find a loose style of playing that, Mm -hmm. you know, is not straight flat picking essentially, uh, cross picking would probably be the closest description of that. Um, and also figuring out how to, play like blind Blake is my other current obsession, which is, um, I'm just like really deep in the police dog blues right now. And I can't get myself out of it, which is great because usually I don't pull myself out until I've figured it out. Um, I think I really really need to do that deep dive into blind Blake. He is, uh, if anybody doesn't know who he is, he's the father of ragtime guitar. And he, I think, the most impressive thing aside from the fact that he was incredibly influential only just recording about 30 35 songs um and he was only around for a couple years um but he his playing style you know he big bill brunzi was inspired by him and knew him um and he plays this incredibly fast style of rag ragtime guitar that um just sounds like three guitars at once. It's, yeah. it's insane. Um, so yeah, I'm deep into trying to figure out more of his approach. Um, and then also kind of deepening, um, my love for, um, singing is the other part. Um, the other big aspect that I'm trying to kind of grasp mm-hmm. is the variation of old time singing to what I do, which is, a bit more modern, um, a more soulful approach. And I'm trying to figure out how to cut some of the soulfulness out while still maintaining maintaining a soulful approach, but trying to figure out how to be more clear and and not carry my notes for so long and not go up and down so much, but to really kind of keep a a crisp long line in my notes. and to just kind of evolve uh, as a musician too. And um, so those are my big focuses. I'm not focused whatsoever on writing uh, at the moment. I did, I have written some 
well written i have created some instrumental pieces so far on the guitar that are kind of a cross-section between all these different things that we just discussed um but i'm not interested and i haven't had a desire to write songs for about a year and a half now i know that's going to change at some point um but i'm just so i'm heavily focused on trying to preserve what's out there so that it continues to be played and talked about um because i feel like that's just much more important than me writing another love song or me writing uh, another song about the earth or something like that uh-huh hmm. that's a really uh a really interesting approach i really i think that's really awesome thanks and kind of speaking of that you put out this new album this year uh mm -hmm. in november right yeah last yeah. month of a bunch of uh folk songs and it's uh it's really cool because you of course take these folk songs and you really do them justice and put a little bit of your own spin and really just keep that old time sound yeah so what is the story behind this album uh why'd you decide to to make it i i mean of course uh with your newfound approach of a uh, preserving sure yeah i think it is the it's the the love child of my mentor for sure it's the it's her um it's the first time that i'm honoring what she taught me and as far as uh documenting uh, on a record it's the first time i've recorded an, a full record of traditional songs the last record that i put out had um big rock candy mountains which is a traditional song and then it also had a woody, woody guthrie song but the rest of them were originals um yeah. I had a couple of different approaches with this record. I really wanted to rearrange them in a, in a, a manner where they're, like you said, they're still recognizable, um, but they are, and they still, re, you know, retain their kind of original authenticity, yeah. but trying to make, um, to add some instrumentation that might put it in a, a crossover to a different genre for a second, um, like the clarinet, which is kind of the prominent other instrument on the record. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason that I wanted to do that was because, uh, tradition is constantly evolving. And I think it's also important to give, uh, these old songs kind of an, um, a chance to shine in a different limelight than they have been mm -hmm. and to try to expose them to a different audience. And that means kind of, you know, spinning them a little bit and, um, the main approach that was different for this record than any other one is that I recorded the whole thing myself um, oh, wow. with this mic, with, mainly with the microphone that I'm talking to right now, which is the one that I use for the podcast. Um, wow. And I just use the same setup. I have a two channel little Scarlet audio interface yeah. and I go right into my MacBook and I use GarageBand. That's really all I do. And because oh, wow, it sounds amazing. That's because so the big focus for me in the last like five years and all the musicians that i played with is tone because most of the time when you're recording in a studio you may not be thinking about it because you have an engineer behind there who's going to eq it he's going to throw it through a bunch of plugins they're going to make it sound amazing through their instrumentation you know through their uh, the hardware that they have or the software and one thing that I knew that I really wanted to do is, uh, and I, something I've been doing for a long time is to create an organic sound 
you record a lot of things live. So I always do my guitar and vocals together. Um, but I also wanted to do some takes with other musicians that are on the record live as well. So there's a, there's four or three songs that feature myself, upright bass and fiddle and two female harmonies. We recorded all those songs together. Mm-hmm. And then, um, there's several other tunes that I recorded just myself, um, solo, um, either stomping on my stomp box or stomping on the ground or mm-hmm. something else I could find trying to vary those different sounds. Yeah. And then, um, the other bits were either recorded together with a clarinet or those were the only things that were overdubbed was clarinet, um, myself playing banjo and, um, my other guitar player who also did uh, lap steel on a couple tunes. And, um, I also did all the mixing and all the editing. And the best thing about all of that was that I mixed on the fly. Um, so I, I made sure that the tone was right. If I had any EQ, I really wanted to just be like, cut out most of the highs, add a good amount of low and keep the mids high so that it has kind of this warm old tone to it. Yeah, That's the only EQing that I did. And then I made sure that everybody knew the tone that I was trying to get with their instrument, like their level of, you know, how far away they were, what the room sounded like, all that stuff was easy. And then, um, afterwards editing was a breeze I and mean, it took you know in the amount of time that we actually recorded it would probably would have taken a couple of days but it was um kind of scattered throughout two months of work and um i sent it off to be mastered by my tried and true air show mastering in boulder who's who i've worked with for a long time and they do really amazing work with different roots musicians and and bands and they always put out a really quality product that sounds analog and they'll you know, they'll try to make it, if you want, they'll try to make it sound old, which I really appreciated too. Yeah. Um, and so that whole process was totally different because I've been in the studio for mixing and I've been in the studio and done some editing and I've done and plenty of engineering myself, but I've never done every, everything uh, together. And I was really proud because it was the first time that I'd set out. I had a vision in mind before I, I started recording and I actually achieved what I wanted. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll listen back to records and be like, damn, man, I really, I spent like two hours listening to this snare hit and I just did not get the right sound that I wanted out of that. Or I shouldn't have thrown this, uh, you know, pedal steel section in there or whatever. I'm always like looking back and, and wishing I had changed things. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's, that'll be the case with this record. Cause I actually hit the mark on the first, you know, on the end product. So it's a lot of different stuff on this record, yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome. Is that? Do you think that's gonna be, or that is your 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 main goal right now? Because uh, for me, I'm always always my biggest goal is to try to just write better songs, adopt different styles into my my playing, and that varies every now and then. But generally, that's kind of a, what I strive for. What is your goal right now? My goal is pretty simple. Um, it is to continue my own self-discovery through history, through diving into more history and understanding more about the songs that have come into this country from other places and how and the songs that were um, melded together from other people huh. that um, came to this country. 
Um, and the, I guess the mission is mainly to preserve and to continue to continue the conversation for other generations. I think that's like the, the main thing that I care about. I don't, if, if part of my process and part of the way I do that is through my career, um, then my goal is to just, you know, it's not like I don't want to sell or, you know, whatever, get a hundred thousand streams. And I'm not looking yeah. to get to some, you know, place that I've some, you know, I get, it's hard to describe. I don't have a goal of like, I want to get to this stage or I want to get to open for this artist or I want to play this festival. Um, I've become really relaxed. I was very heavily focused on all those things. And I quickly found that every time I accomplished a goal and I thought I would be happy at, I wasn't, I wasn't actually happier than I thought it would be and nothing had changed. Um, that's not always true. You know, of course, like you, if you hit marks and you're able to say, Hey, I, I got to open for, um, Taj Mahal, which was amazing. Um, and I get to use that as a reference when I try to book shows, um, or as a credit, but I guess the, the, the goal right now is like to make is to become, um, as self-sustainable as possible. And I have been self-sustained with different projects and music for 10 years now. Um, but I guess it's more of like, because I have a family now, I guess it's more of just how can I keep going and make this more comfortable for my family while I'm pursuing my passion, which is music history and, and preservation. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing that really matters right now and continuing to create and to, um, to, you know, have my own renditions out there of these old styles is, is a big part of that. Um, but it's much more selfless than it used to be of like, um, me, me, me sort of thing. And now it's yeah, yeah. very much of like us and us, us, us sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I want to just keep, you know, I want to, with the podcast, especially I do have some specific goals. Like I really want to work with Smithsonian Folkways on a collaboration and oh, go yeah. there to their archive of folk song. I want to go to, That's um, I want to go interview the guy from, uh, Lance Ledbetter from Dust to Digital. Um, I want, I'm working on a collaboration with the John C. Campbell Folk School for next year and going there and doing a field recording. Um, that's the kind of thing I was talking about of these opportunities that are popping up that I probably never would have the chance to, to, um, to do because this podcast allows for a lot of different, uh, avenues to open up that yeah. you just, you know, couldn't happen with, with, um, my own career as you know, too, I'm sure. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy because of what you do and to the caliber, the caliber that the podcast is done. I think it's going to be hard for it not to be successful. Thanks for saying that. Definitely. And mostly, I think one of the things that would be uh, great about hitting, you know, some of those milestones is just getting it to more people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really cool. Would you say that being more, uh, you know, selfless about it, is that one of the biggest things that you've taken away from all your years of doing, uh, you know, playing music and writing and, uh, and yeah. Yeah, I would say that's a very accurate statement because, you know, when I was with, when I was doing the Weatherman project, um, I was living out of different vehicles and really like putting everything that I had into this 
this thing that we're talking about, this goal or like hitting these marks. Um, and I didn't actually, I didn't know what my end goal was with that project. And I let myself run ragged, you know, doing 180 to 200 shows a year for like four or five years and not taking a break and not, um, allowing myself to soften around those, the passion, you know what I mean? Like I, I was so gung ho about getting somewhere that I didn't even actually know where it was that I had lost sight entirely of why I played music. And that all came from selfish and kind of egotistical mindsets of, um, you know, really getting upset if a, a crowd was, you know, somebody in the crowd was talking or if the crowd didn't react in the way that I was hoping after a certain song or, um, you know, not getting the opportunities like I felt like it deserved, that sort of thing. All those, all those different ideas that I had in my head caught up with me and, and it all came to a head in one point and I had to drop everything um, because I realized I'm, I'm a very, you know, if something big in my mind comes, you know, and I, there's a realization that things are not right, then I usually shut down and re and kind of recalibrate and figure out, okay, where, how can I reshift my focus? So I stopped playing music and that's the first time I'd stopped playing music in like 10 years when I did that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had to figure out if I wanted to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So it got scary for a long time. You know, it, it, if you are constantly in this, and this isn't to say that you can't achieve great things if you have a mindset of like me, 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 but I, there will be a point where your ego will ruin the things around you that you care about friends, family, uh, your own personal career, if, if need be, but, um, it's all, you know, it, it comes from a sense of greed and, and not having a sense of gratitude. If you can maintain a sense of gratitude throughout the whole process, mm-hmm. you'll be great. You'll be just golden. Um, cause that's, you know, the opposite of ego essentially. So, um, I would say that is the biggest thing that I took away from the weatherman project in general, aside from the different experiences and the, the styles of music that I came away from, uh, outside of that, mm-hmm. uh, that was the first, the biggest takeaway was how to not let yourself ruin your entire career. Um, it was a, you know, a perfect case of (laughs) what not to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find a lot of the, a lot of the tactics that are used, a lot of the, uh, mindsets that, uh, are abundant in the music industry can turn out to be very very toxic even if they uh mean to be harmless and it can kind of get away from you yeah it's uh pretty crazy and i actually uh speaking of that i kind of have a question that i feel like it'd be really interesting to hear your answer a lot of people you know they say you know you know do the which of course to to a certain extent this is true that you know you play some of the not as good shows to get, you know, the better shows, you know, you do some of the not so great opportunities to do what you love. Mm -hmm. But I feel like sometimes that definitely comes to where it gets a little too far. What do you think about that? Um, It's hard because, well, it's hard in general as a musician, because receiving, you know, this is such a 
a first world problem to have, but receiving adoration and receiving applause and having people tell you how great you are all the time can do a huge amount of damage to your mind if you let it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when you start getting to the point where you're getting really good shows, you start to set a bar for yourself, right? You say like, man, that was amazing. It would be great if every show was like that. And then the next show ends up being a dumper, right? Yeah. Um, this has happened to me time and time again. And what I had to teach myself was that no matter if there's, and this is still something I struggle with, if there's only a couple people in the audience, but they're all paying attention, that's better than being in a room full of 500 people that aren't paying attention to you. Because you're actually having a, an intimate experience with those people. Um, you may not realize it, but you have an opportunity to have an intimate experience with those people. And for, for me, the biggest thing that I took away from understanding those experiences and those fluctuations of having really good shows and having really bad shows mm -hmm. is that you have to take each one with a grain of salt and you have to take it with the same, you have to go into it with the same mentality of I'm here to connect with people, whoever's there. Um, and if they don't want to connect, that's okay. <laughs> uh, it's like a really hard, yeah. it's a mantra, you know, that you have to keep telling yourself to feel real, but it is something that helps, I think. Yeah, I think that is a, a really great way to come at that. Really great mindset is, uh, it's easy to, to, you know, think about, but sometimes it's hard to, to practice. But I, I think once you do treat each experience with the, the same mindset, I think one of the more profound, I mean, not that his, uh, his things aren't profound, but uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard has this uh, thing that he says a lot, you gotta keep your gratitude higher than your expectations. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, because some of his lyrics can be uh, real blunt, and it's not always... Uh, I think his wife says that, actually. He put it into a, a song. <laughs> yeah, it's a really great mindset to have. I, I mean, that's a great mindset in life in general, yeah. not just with music, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. I think if you can walk into any room and say, I'm going to be more grateful than I, I will, whatever outcome I'm expecting then you'll pleasantly surprise yourself every time. Yeah, well, that's awesome. This has been a pleasure getting to talk to you. I'm super excited. I'm super excited that I got to do this. And I am yeah, too. Thank you. I'm, yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. And um, again, I'm just, I'm thrilled to see a person in your, in your shoes and where you're at in life doing what you're doing. And um, it's really exciting to me to see where you're at now and also really exciting to see what will happen with you in the future and where you're going to go. And, uh, hopefully I'm sure we'll cross paths and in person sometime. Yeah, I really hope so. Yeah. And, uh, we'll do a show together sometime. Yeah. That sounds super fun. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on here and talking with me, everyone. If you're listening, please go, uh, check out American song catcher, all of, uh, Nicholas's, uh, music. Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, I hope we can uh, talk again sometime soon. I agree. Yes. Uh, so uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Once again, this is uh, Jack Bart, Soldier Survival. This is uh, Nicholas Edward Williams. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you, bud.